In order that all sentient beings may attain buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, <clears throat> you were their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization, yet you practice hidden in the forest and sacred solitude, Longchenpa. 
in the state of Dharmakaya, Trimeos, her stainless light at your feet, I pray, grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Hey, good evening. So uh, this evening we go through the uh, as much of the mind-only section as we can, the Chittamatra section. Just to give a little preface, um, Chittamatra is the most difficult tenet system to understand. Um, it uh, it's very complicated. It's very elusive. And basically just doesn't make any sense. Other than that, it's, tonight should be very easy, clear sailing. And uh, also it's, it's notorious for being actually difficult to refute uh, definitively. Uh, Longchenpa just does it very quickly. But um, most scholars uh, admit that it's really difficult to refute the Chittamatra. And I'm talking in particular about uh, Zongsar Kyanse Rimshe as taught on the Madhyamaka Avatara by Chandra Kirti, the introduction to the Middle Way a few times, and has put together. Uh, the first of those times was made into a book. That's really uh, quite an amazing commentary on that text. And we used it a few years ago when we went through that text and um, in that he, he also, that, that's what he says. He says the Chittamatra system is really quite a powerful system and uh, both being uh, a very, in many ways, a very good uh, way of explaining the various aspects of things to be explained and uh, also very difficult to refute. Uh, he talks about it when you when they do debate in the in the shadras, they have to take on the views of the different schools and, and have to really understand them and defend them. And uh, that he always liked to take on the Chittamatra view because it's very hard to defeat that. He, he became quite good in presenting that view in a uh, in a way that was very hard to defeat by his colleagues. Anyway, so tonight, uh, last last week, we went through what are called the three natures. Um, imputation, dependence, and the absolute. And each of them had two different types. And um, in terms of the list of things to explain or understand about the world, as we experience it, that these tenant systems are striving to explain, which I came up with a list of five. What is, what's real? In particular, uh, uh, matter and mind, in what way are they real? 
what are they? How does uh, production work? How do things come about? How do we perceive them? How does perception work? <clears throat> How does karma work? That uh, accumulation of moral propensity, not the me mechanical uh, equal and opposite that is sometimes thought of karma in the West. Karma is not an equal and opposite reaction as in uh, physics where every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Karma is very different from that. And it's uh, really important to understand that. And then lastly, how does liberation happen? And so last week, the three natures we're talking about, what's real? What is reality? And uh, again, this is within the, the premise of the overall uh, strategy or scheme or mission, prime directive of Buddhism is uh, to become enlightened and uh, to uh, experience the sensation of suffering. The premise is that to do that, we have to know what is genuinely real and uproot ignorance. And so those five categories are within that scheme. And from that point of view, the, the three categories that we went through last week are that the Chittamantran's attempt to um, understand what is what is real. What what is what do we encounter in our world? What sort of phenomena? And uh, while the previous schools were uh, primarily focused on what are the different um, specific categories of phenomena, uh, what are the five? What are the types of matter? What are the types of mind and mental factors and so forth? Um, and there was some un, some uh, reference to, well, which of those are genuinely real and which of them are only relatively real. And uh, for the Chitta Mantra, this becomes a, a major endeavor. And uh, instead of it being a bifurcation, it's a trifurcation, three different types. The imputed phenomena are general ideas, generic ideas, generally characterized phenomena, concepts, imaginary things, imputations, conceptual projections onto experience. Uh, those, those projections are made by consciousness and placed on phenomena and the basis of imputation is known as the dependent nature. In the sense that imputation depends upon it. And in the sense that the dependent nature depends on itself for its um, arising and production and manifestation. It arises in an interdependent manner. Uh, lastly, there's this idea that uh, there's uh, an absolute, a, a perfectly complete, uh, completely perfect nature to phenomena. 
which is their, the, the true nature of phenomena as being, in this case, consciousness, the ground of all experience. So then we're on page 84. And um, Derek, yes. Derek, before we just yeah. to make sure I've got these down before we dive in more. Um, so put simply, the dependent, we wouldn't have our, we wouldn't do so much of a imputing things if we didn't have the, de these, this dependent nature, things arising in the dependent nature in a dependent way. Is that kind of how those two relate? Uh, certainly without dependent nature, there would be uh, not much imputation because there would be no this for imputation. That's right. Okay. And uh, it's sort of like the dependent nature is, is all that there is to experience. And on the one hand, when we're confused and uh, believing things to exist, we project, we impute realities onto that dependent nature that don't exist there. And on the other hand, when we understand the emptiness of the imputed imaginary phenomena, then we experience the completely perfected absolute nature of the dependent. And this whole system, um, I, I find, takes a very long time to absorb and, uh, and have a sense that there's any understanding of it. Um, the whole thing of no external objects, only mind only, which um, she doesn't actually, I, I mean, he doesn't really even say that anywhere, Josie. I didn't see that so far. It's just sort of understood. Right. And, uh, so he's, he's saying, um, they explain the world given that there are no external objects. And the jump that he didn't really elaborate on is that in the Chittama and the Sautrantika system, which we mentioned last week, but it's worth repeating, is that there's a focus, uh, there's a focus on the idea that perception occurs within the consciousness, that um, the mental consciousness is conscious of the uh, replication of external stimuli that occurs within the sense faculty. And the Chittamatrans are saying, well, there's no basis to think that there is an external phenomena that generated that, that impression, that uh, shed its data into the sense faculty. Your reason for, for uh, creating that system of the aspect or the data in the sense faculty is because of the incongruity of mind and matter and the uh, sort of in uh, tenability of saying that to these two very two very different substances mind and matter interact and so they create this intermediary 
and the Chichimachas are saying, you know, that's silly, just sort of pass the buck. Anyway, so tonight we're going to try to go through two sections of the text, starting on page 84, which begins after the last quote on the page with the word overline. And this is the system of the eight consciousnesses, eight levels of consciousness. And, uh, and then we're going to go into the varieties of chitta-mantras. Round ones, square ones pink ones, elephants, things like that, and how they view the bases. The base, what are the bases? Form, the bases of form, of mind, of mental uh, factors. What does this translator call mental factors? Uh, mental states, and then uh, distinct formative factors and uncompounded phenomena. Those are the five bases. Different than five skandhas, slightly. Overlying this on page 84 is a, is a non-recognition of awareness that has no beginning and acts as a foundation of all afflictive states. He's talking about what's called the Alia Vijnana in Sanskrit. Alia is a word that means the foundation or the ground. And Vijnana is consciousness. So the ground consciousness, the ground of all consciousness. So in the Chittamatra system, there's this idea that there's this fundamental state level of consciousness that's present throughout different other different mental states and which acts both as a receptacle for uh, propensities that are incurred by interactions with uh, experience of the dependent nature. And uh, it also acts as the place where those propensities are matured and result in the experiences that uh, give rise to the belief in objects. So it creates both the result of the activity of past activity, karmic activity, that resides then in the, in the latent state in the Aliyavijnana, and it gives rise to the dependent nature's further manifestations. What we're going to see is that this Aliyavijnana has two aspects to it. It has a diluted aspect to it, or uh, ignorance aspect to it, and then it has a completely neutral aspect to it um, that has the propensity for wisdom. Some systems, these are, are segregated as two different things, so to speak. Uh, but we saw this also in the last course that finding rest in the nature of mind that Longchenpa calls them two different states or aspects of this one thing, the foundation consciousness. So uh, it's a non-recognition of awareness. So it's, it's ignorant, it's fundamental, fundamentally ignorant, has no beginning, 
and is the foundation for all afflictions. Is this aspect undifferentiated in any sense and therefore ethically neutral? That is termed the basis of all ordinary experience that supports a multiplicity of habit patterns. It is in essence non-conceptual. And uh, it's interesting to note that uh, it's ignorant and non-conceptual. Often there's a simplistic affiliation of uh, non-conceptuality with ignorance. Uh, sorry, conceptuality with ignorance and non-conceptuality with wisdom. That is in, uh, inaccurate. Just because uh, there's a, a non-conceptual mind does not mean it's not ignorant. As case in point, the Alayavishnana is non-conceptual and, and yet is ignorant. It, it is, in essence, non-conceptual and does not involve conscious perception of sense objects. So there's no registering consciously. So it's been called the subconscious or the unconscious. <clears throat> Similar to the collective unconscious and the system of Carl Jung. If one becomes habituated to this state, one's karma will be such that it will propel one toward rebirth in the realm of formlessness. How does one become habituated to this state? How does one become, uh, give rise to a birth in the formless state in the systems that we've seen so far? Meditative trance through the absorption states. So the meditative absorptions that are common to the early system of Buddhism in which the Buddha taught on extensively and are uh, therefore part of this Theravadan system of the path to enlightenment through meditation give uh, lead to rebirth in the formless realms. And in, that, in this system, he's saying that those types of meditation are a way of becoming habituated to the Alayavishnana. And that process results in rebirth in the formless realms, higher realms of samsara, but still samsara. However, some chitta mantras, and he says those who accept a flawless ground, and we'll come back to this distinction of flawed and flawless grounds, include the foregoing support for habit patterns, uh, meaning this Aliya Vijnana, within the coordinating mental faculty, which is the sixth consciousness, since they consider this support to be identical to the non-conceptual mode of consciousness, that is this faculty. The uh, mental sixth consciousness has two aspects. It has a conceptual mode, where we think about generic ideas, such as things like people and dogs and so forth. And it has a non-conceptual aspect where it experiences the uh, data registering in the sense faculties in a non-conceptual way. So the sixth consciousness is unique in that it has both conceptual and non-conceptual aspects. 
Uh, they do not maintain that there is something such as a basis of all ordinary experience. So, while Chittamacha is famous for having this eighth consciousness, he's saying that some of them don't. Just to make things a little more complicated and fun, but uh, not the mainstream. Your mainstream Chittamachas adhere to the eighth consciousness. Anyway, they do, however, accept that there is an ultimate ground of all experience an ultimate ground as opposed to a, um, a basis of all ordinary experience, foundation of afflictive states. So here's the first instance of a different aspect of the, from the Alia Vishnana of a deeper ground of experience that's not afflicted. There's an ultimate ground. For then consciousness is the basis of all ordinary experience, i.e. the Aliyavishnana, is lucid consciousness that has not differentiated into the coordinating mental faculty, the sixth, or any of the five sense consciousnesses. So it's sort of pure consciousness. As a result of one's habituation to the state, one's karma will propel one toward rebirth in the realm of form. So, uh, unlike the prior situation where um, the aspect of um, of the Alia Vijnana that does not experience objects, if you if you meditate on that, you end up in the formless realms, and so there, then there's another aspect of the Alia Vijnana that does experience the five sense consciousnesses. And if you meditate on that, you end up in the form realms. Just little details, things to look out for in your paths of meditation as you progress in your absorption states. Decide where you want to live next time, which realm you want to be reborn in. Or you want to be for Halloween, for example. As a result of one's, uh, let's see, these Chittamatras who hold a flawless position take this aspect uh, consciousness as the basis of all ordinary experience to be the basis for differentiated avenues of consciousness. Uh, they say that it constitutes ethically neutral consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty. So he's, he's just talking about little shades of different distinctions within views of how the Alayavishnana relates to the five sense consciousnesses and the coordinating mental faculty. Eric, when when the term ethically neutral keeps coming up here, um, is that something that can be read sort of in like a, our understanding of ethics, like, um, you know, being nice to people or, you know, doing the right, right thing within your culture, or is it something more kind of base level than that? Well, it pretty much is that it's, it's sort of the basis. It's sort of the fundamental level of that, of positive and negative activity. Um, and that this state is not yet involved in positive and negative activities referring to the generation of karma and karmic propensities. And so that saying that this aspect of our being 
is a sort of an open space. It's not naturally leaning one way or another. It's not naturally leaning towards uh, negative activity nor positive activity nor enlightened state of being. It, it has this quality of uh, going, uh, of being a potential that, that can support any of those avenues. So, so it's then not creating karma. That's, that's correct. It's a, it's a receptacle for karma and a place where karma uh, ripens, but it doesn't actually create additional karma. That's, that's a good point, important point. Evolving from it are the five sense consciousnesses. These are characterized as five from the standpoint of the individual sense faculties that cause sense data to arise to inner consciousness. So here we have our little indication, a, a sort of obscure way of saying there's no external phenomena. It's just the, uh, the, the five sense faculties uh, cause sense data that they somehow have access to, to manifest in the external, uh, internally. Data that are similar to those that manifest in the external world. I think he means data similar to those that we think manifest in the external world. Chichimachans hold that the agent of experience is simply a state of reflexive consciousness that is naturally lucid. Without the duality of objects and the subject of experience perceiving these objects. So everything happens within the same place. There's no division, real division between subject and object in this situation, in this view. For them, consciousness is the coordinating mental faculty is consciousness that is produced in the wake of the five sense faculties within their momentum, within the momentum of them. Experiences objects that are both external and internal phenomena. I found this a little weird. Where's the external phenomena? <laughs> They use the term the afflictive aspects of consciousness to refer to the process of investigation that gives rise to any of the three reactions, attraction, aversion, or indifference, which then arises afflicted states, afflictive states such as the three or five mental poisons. I believe he's talking to what we call the seventh consciousness at this point. On the one hand, it's sort of interesting that his description of this whole situation is so... Uh, sort of elusive and on the other hand it's quite irritating <laughs> it's hard to figure out what the hell he's talking about anyway he's, he's locked up but how can he complain right? those chitamachans who posit the non-duality of mind and its myriad perceptions so he's sort of indicating that there's there's uh, He's hinting at Chittamachans that believe there is an external world, which is sort of bizarre. Anyway, the ones that posit the non-duality of mind and its perceptions combine two modes of consciousness. Consciousness has the coordinating mental faculty and the afflictive aspect of consciousness, the seventh. Thus, they accept only seven avenues of consciousness. Just a little minor point that there are some Chittamachans that have seven because they've, they've combined six and seven. They don't distinguish them. The 
sort of like in sort of categorizing, you know, like you might categorize birds, and there's some birds that that don't like fit the normal categories. There's these weird birds. In their source text, they posit that mind consists of consciousness as the basis of all ordinary experience, together with its attendant factors, which are the five non-conceptual sense consciousnesses. They hold that the coordinating them, mental faculty is consciousness that is produced in the wake of the sense consciousnesses, together with with its attendant mental states, that is, the 51 states that involve the conception of I and mind. So here he's saying that the, the distinct mental states are actually where this, what we would call the seventh consciousness resides. They're, they're pervaded by the idea of an I. And so part of what's going on here is, is that uh, the overall scheme of studying and trying to understand these is we're just sharpening, to some extent, all we're doing is we're sharpening our investigation of our own experience. Of how does our mind work? What it, what is our mind? What is experience? What is our mind experiencing? What is the world? How does all this happen? And sort of looking at different options as a way of just becoming sharper, more um, precise in investigating our own experience. And uh, and it's really not terribly important to understand uh, completely and thoroughly all these different distinctions and categorizations. But it's more the, the process of trying to understand how perception occurs. Uh, Derek? Yes. But it seems like you, you, one has to kind of understand they build on, the different tenant systems build on each other, so it seems like you do have to have a basic understanding of the Vaibhashikas and Sautrantikas in order to move on to, you know, all of this and beyond, right? Uh, I mean, there's otherwise it's... <laughs> there's, there's definitely a basic understanding needed. Mm -hmm. you, you know, but to, to what extent do you need a more detailed understanding? Mm -hmm. Basic fundamental sort of uh, advances or incremental building blocks that are put in place in these systems. And then um, in addition to that, when we get to the next system, the, the Madhyamaka, they basically dispense with all the complexity. And they, and they basically say, you know, you guys have just tied yourself totally in knots and none of it makes sense. <laughs> and the only thing that makes sense is that everything's nonsensical, really. And that the effort to uh, pin it all down is this or that. It's just tying your mind in knots. And what a relief. Yeah, exactly. What a relief. And, and that's the whole point of Madhyamaka is is to exhaust the conceptual mind. And I don't know about you guys, but I found this reading pretty exhausting. <laughs> so I thought he did a pretty good job. They hold that, uh, let's see, we did that. And he quotes from some text, which is a little uh, unclear. 
and skipping the quote. Let's go on to the next page. He describes perception on 86. For example, when one sees a lily, it's possible to be simultaneously conscious of the sound of bees, which are always present in others' lilies, uh, the scent and texture of the flower, and the taste of something. I guess you're eating something as you're looking at your lilies. It must be tea time. Thus, this, the Chittamachan says, because these sense objects are perceived in a single moment of the five non-conceptual sense consciousnesses. Now, the sense consciousnesses are each operating all the time, doing their thing. Them, the bare, lucid aspect of such non-conceptual consciousness as sense consciousness is by definition. At that point, constitutes consciousness as the basis of all ordinary experience. So here the Aliya Vijnana has um, morphed, so to speak, into the sense consciousnesses, the non-conceptual, uh, bare, lucid experience of uh, sense data. Joy or sorrow occurs in the moment that there is awareness of sense objects. That is experience of the process of conceptualization and mental investigation. That occurs in the sixth consciousness. Once the non-conceptual yet lucid and perceptual mode of consciousness of the five and a sixth avenue of consciousness as the base of all ordinary experience, which, uh, which insane He's referring to the non-conceptual aspect of the sixth consciousness that perceives the five sense consciousnesses has ceased. There's an aspect of a perceiving agent that is the conceptual mode of consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty. So he's trying to identify a, a specific sort of stream of conscious experience or cognitive experience as beginning with sensory consciousness in the five sense consciousnesses and then the sixth has a non-conceptual experience of those and then their sixth has a conceptual experience of those. Eric, I found this surprising that the joy or sorrow moment seemed to occur before the conceptual mode of consciousness. I would have thought there would be sort of a conceptual moment of consciousness that would then result in a, in the joy or sorrow. So I was surprised that they were in a different order. Yeah, that's great. That's so good that you mentioned that. Um, so the, the idea is that uh, joy and sorrow, I, I believe, refer to what we would call emotions. Is that sort of fair? estimation that uh, those are emotions and uh, they're actually those emotions occur in what are what are called the mental states the distinct mental states the so-called 51 and in themselves they're all non-conceptual when they occur in affiliation with a non-conceptual sense consciousness so if we remember the way that the so-called primary mind occurs in conjunction with a, a set of secondary mind or mental factors. 
every moment of consciousness has a whole set of mental factors that arise with this. There's first the, the five uh, omnipresent ones, then there's the five object determining ones, and then there's either virtuous ones or uh, unvirtuous root or unvirtuous um, secondary mental factors that occur in each moment. And um, if the uh, main consciousness is a non-conceptual consciousness, then the mental factors, because of the sort of law of, of the five congruencies between mind and mental factors, time, basis, object, and so forth, they are also non-conceptual. So therefore, emotion in that when it's when it accompanies a non-conceptual primary mind is non-conceptual. When emotion uh, occurs in conjunction with a conceptual mind, then it's conceptual. And so I believe he's talking here about, uh, because he's talking here about a non-conceptual consciousness, the five sense consciousness. Anything that occurs with that is non-conceptual. Oh. That's, that's a really good point to understand how that's is, uh, said to happen. Let's see. What's the non-conceptual yet lucid and perceptual mode of consciousness? The five and part of the sixth. That is the, the sixth, the part of the sixth called consciousness as the basis of all ordinary experience. I ceased. There's an aspect of a perceiving agent. Belief in an eye. That is the conceptual mode of consciousness as the coordinating mental faculty, the conceptual part of the sixth. It arises moment by moment and does not continue into a second moment. Um, that is the idiom, the cessation of the sixth refers to the shift from the non-conceptual to the conceptual mode. In actuality, however, the sense consciousness is together with the consciousness as the basis of all ordinary experience, continue undiminished as individual facets or aspects. And this is sort of a convoluted way of saying that when there's one sort of stream of cognitive uh, uh, experience where, let's say you you experience the smell of the flower, non-conceptual sense consciousness, and that smells nice. You feel joy from that. And then that transitions into the uh, conceptual part of the sixth consciousness, which starts, uh, which uh, thinks about, I am experiencing joy. At the same time, uh, you know, so that's a sequence of moments, right? First moment is the sense consciousness. Second moment is the, the mental non-conceptual consciousness. Third moment is the mental conceptual consciousness. When when the when at the at the time of the second moment, when the non-conceptual mind is experiencing the sense consciousnesses, the sense consciousnesses they haven't like taken a break. They're having the, the next, the first moment of the next series of cognitive moments. So he's trying to express that 
This is happening all the, t all the time, but it happens in this order. And, uh, it, you know, as, as uh, moment one in cognitive series one goes to moment two in cognitive series one, moment one of cognitive series two starts, you know, and so forth. Can I ask a question that relates to this, um, both in terms of that sequence and also this whole thing of, that was talked about about joy and sorrow. If the joy and sorrow is in the more conceptual realm, the in the in the evolution of the skandhas where you have form and then feeling, the feeling being like the just the bare kind of reactive like dislike part, is that different a previous is that prior to the joy and sorrow or is that the same thing okay. you know what i'm talking about that usually they talk about the that before we even label what the thing is we already have a gut reaction of like or dislike acceptance or rejection right yeah so or, that, or neutrality it's a good question so let's uh try to go through this in a in a careful, methodical manner. To do that, I'm going to screen share one of the many charts of the many dramas, see if I can find one that will serve us well. Let's see. Pick a chart, pick a chart. How about the 79? 79 dramas? How many dramas on the wall? Take one down, pass it around. Uh, yeah, this one will do. Okay, so I believe I've, let's see, have I been hosted by the... You haven't, but you should be able to screen share, I believe. Oh, right, you did that. Yeah, that's cool. I can see it. You should be able to see it. <laughs> yeah, everybody see uh, part of a chart? Okay, so we're in the 79 dharmas. It's my creation that normally it's like 75, but it left out the, five, the four main elements of earth, water, fire, and air. So I added those and it made 79. Anyway, uh, here's the five bases. The five bases are form, main mind, chitta, mental factors, non-associated formations or um, my memory, God, my mind is like mush. I can't remember the terms he uses. For uh, mental factors, he says, bases of mental states and then distinct formative factors. That's how he describes non-associated formations. And then the fifth category is the uncreated, uncompounded phenomena, right? So, in the mental factors, the so-called 51, we have the following groups. We have general or often present. Oh, this one doesn't, yeah, the, the, which has two, the general uh, mental factors, which has two, in other systems has two parts. There should be 10 of these. And um, Five of them are omnipresent, five are object determined. But it's actually simpler this way because basically all 10 are present in every moment of cognition. And you'll see that feeling is in there. 
Now we have virtuous mental factors, root negative reflections, and then uh, this one has this odd distinction between uh, um, universally evil ones that it will skip over, and then it has minor afflictions, and then indeterminate things. And um, you see that feeling is not in what we would normally call emotions, these virtuous and negative mental factors. This feeling is a sort of mechanical process of mind that uh, senses the object of cognition. It's not an emotion. It's not uh, that joy, it's not joy or sorrow. Joy or sorrow would would occur really later in these virtuous and unvirtuous. And um, the difference between this scheme and the five skandhas is that the Buddha tried to simplify or, or created another way of looking at how the mind-body complex that we call a person or a human being works. And he did numerous cuts on this. He did the five skandhas, he did the, the uh, 12 ayatanas, and he did the 18 dhatus, and they each have a different significance in terms of getting at the three mistaken views of the sense of self as being um, continuous, unitary, and independent. And uh, so the Buddha said there's form, there's the body, then he said there's feeling, discrimination, and then there's mental factors all the rest. So he did this odd thing where he pulled out form and feeling from among the mental factors and made them into separate skandhas. And in doing that, he implied a, a sort of a sequential experience of, of experience, a sequential process, let's say, of, of experience, of cognitive experience which is different than how it's presented in the, in the Abhidharma system. These are all simultaneous. You have the cognition of, of form and simultaneous with that, you have these mental factors happening. It's not sequential. So there are different ways of describing the indescribable. And what they're both ways are trying to do is erode the sense of self, erode the belief in a self. And uh, in terms of like what is interpretable and what is uh, lit, uh, literal or what is provisional and what is definitive, all of this is provisional. And definitive truth is empty, luminous nature of mind of Buddha nature is the only thing that's definitively true. So all of this is skillful means. And so we have different skillful means for different purposes that present what we think is the same thing in different ways, but there is no same thing. So therefore, we can have different ways to describe the absence of the same thing.
Does that make sense? Makes sense. Anyway, that was a very long-winded uh, way of addressing what what Cynthia is getting at is how do we how do we compare the five skandhas to the five bases, and why are form uh, feeling and discrimination pulled out? So he pulls them out in order to highlight those uh, sort of major initial steps that happen between form and mind, matter and mind. When we look at the five skandhas, we say that one of them is matter and four of them is mind. Four of them are mind, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling onward is, is mind. And so he pulled these two out as being distinct, significantly important aspects that sort of build into the uh, overall scheme of mind. And then the rest um, are not, in, from that point of view, as momentous. Great, so just one more follow-up. Can I uh, yeah. thank? So that basically kind of explains the skandhas and the uh, mental factor schema. Then in terms of the moments of perception, then would that experience of what's called feeling in the skandhas just be part of the general sixth consciousness, um, like the third moment when it goes into conceptual thinking? Excellent question. Yeah, so let's go through that. So <laughs> Cynthia is asking, would those uh, mental factors of the whole of the uh, what are called what were called general mental factors? I think there or the omnipresent and object-determining ones, those basic ones of feeling, discrimination, contact, attention, intention, and so forth, uh, would they occur in either moment two or three of the scheme? And the answer goes back to what I said earlier, is that in every cognitive moment, there's um, a, a primary mind, one of the six consciousnesses and an assortment of mental factors. So all of those 10 occur in each of the three moments. So it's even there in moment one. Even there in moment one. Got it. Great. Thanks. That's... And in moment one, they're all non-conceptual. In moment two, because you have just sense consciousness. In moment two, you have mental non-conceptual consciousness of the sense consciousness. So again, all the mental factors are non-conceptual. And then in moment three, they're all conceptual because you have mental conceptual uh, cognition of the mental cognition of the sense faculty. And so that means the gut reaction part is actually right there in the, in the initial perception. That's right. That's right. Non-conceptual gut reaction. Gut reaction, sort of by definition, non-conceptual, or implication, rather. It seems like that. It's just that we, with our conceptual minds, might tend to put it somewhere else. Okay, that's that's great. Well, uh, you know what I mean? Is that we, that... Conditioning, right? So our conditioning, then, uh, conditioning happens on a non-conceptual level. You know, it happens on a conceptual level as well, but then it, it ends up uh, manifesting in our non-conceptual reactions. You know, so like stereotypes, we see a black person and we immediately non-conceptually have 
you know, some sort of stereotypical reaction? Well, well, I think actually the I think you're saying that the the reaction happens on a non-conceptual level, but the the habituation or whatever the conditioning involves conceptual, don't you think? It can be both. There can be, um, you know, an experience like like why do people fear dogs? Some people like have this. Uh, inexplicable fear of dogs. Sometimes it's because they've been bitten. That's my experience. Right. 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 So that was not a conceptual experience. So that conditioning was totally non-conceptual. Ouch. Well, the well, the, the experience itself was non-conceptual, but then the what I think what I guess the question is what reinforces what becomes prejudice or what becomes something like that. That becomes more of a uh, I think a conceptual reinforcement or something. But it's like two parts to it. Your your body has this non-conceptual fear of dogs. And then your mind has stories about it. Oh, every dog is the same as that one that bit. Interesting. I I don't know how that, whether this connects to, I was listening to like Richard Davidson today was talking about the research that he's done. And one of the research things is on, um, where they do a sort of a simulation of pain and they do the monks and the non-monk, I mean, essentially the, the long-term practitioners and the non-long-term practitioners. And they, they basically set you up saying, you know, when you hear this sound, you're then going to feel this pain, you know, like after that. And so the way they described that the people who, ordinary people uh, would, as soon as they heard the sound, their brains would start registering reaction uh, of all kinds, uh, long before the pain started, the actual pain sim- stimulus. And then, um, and it of course would last a lot longer than the pain stimulus. When they did the, the people who had done, you know, 10 years of retreat, uh, it was, you know, light, night and day different. They would have no reaction whatsoever to the, the noise. The warning, yeah. The warning. And then when the actual uh, pain, uh, occurred, they would have lots of response in the, all the right places where pain response is supposed to be. And then when it was over, it was over and no, no subsequent. Yeah. The recovery period is like immediate compared to in other people. Yeah. That's an amazing, it's an amazing research uh, 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 result. You know, that, that research is really cool. Thank you for mentioning that. That's really neat. It seems sort of related to this in the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It was, it's good stuff. Yeah. Henrietta, do you still remember? Where Where was I? (laughs) Where are we? Um, My question was just that this description on page 86 about the moment to moment experience that we're having sounds like the Sautrantica. It's very it's is it the same thing? Is there picking up on that or? The, yeah, it's basically the same thing. The only thing that they're adding is here and there they have its reference to this ground of all being type oh. of the underlying Aliyavishnana. Which I see. Because much. the Sautrantikas are only dealing with six consciousnesses and here we're dealing with eight. That's correct. Okay. Or or seven. Or uh, seven. Okay. Seven or eight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. 
now. Where the hell were we? Uh, this arises moment by moment and does not continue into a second moment. That, that is the idiom. And, uh, blah, blah, blah. In actuality, the sense consciousness together with the others continue undiminished. That's where I think I read that and tried to explain it. The function of scene of form is always that of visual consciousness, which is, in essence, not conceptual. One should understand that the same principle applies to the other uh, senses. Second, the unerring absolute, which I believe refers to the third nature, the section before, is the incorruptible spiritual path together with fruition because one proceeds authentically and does not regress once the destination has been reached. Um, that's a little bit of a non sequitur. Oh, I see. This is going all the way back to page 84 where he's describing the absolute. And the absolute has two aspects. First, there's the unchanging absolute, the way of abiding the ultimate ground of all experience. And then he goes through this very long explanation of this aspect of the absolute relates to the relative and, and the form of all the different types of consciousness and how they experience cognition. Then, under the end of the absolute, which is the end of the three natures, and he calls the second type of absolute, the unerring, is... Uh, it's the uh, incorrupt spiritual path. It's uh, the process that, that gets us there. These topics together with their supporting quotations are, let's see, Emily, can you help me muting people who need to? Oh, yeah. It's going to be muted. Uh, are presented in more detail in my forthcoming book, The Supreme Chariot. We read excerpts from, and I think this section from last course, there was the commentary section at the back of the finding rest of the nature of mind. And hopefully it will actually come out someday. That's being translated, this long commentary. Specific tenets. This is where things get really hairy. And uh, so I'm going to go through this just lightly and then focus in at the end on uh, his refutation or summary of the Chittamatra position. Delineate the specific tenets of the Chittamatra system. These concern five bases of the knowable. So he's going to do it in the form of how they each view the five bases. Bases of form, mind, mental states, situational paradigms, which are the variations of the above three, otherwise called, uh, in other places, called the distinct... Formative factors, one of these days I'll remember that. And uncompounded phenomena, how these tenets are set forth is represented by two groups. Hitomatrans who consider consciousness to entail sense data and those who consider it to be void, devoid of sense data. And uh, so this is a very odd divisions within the mind-only tradition. And uh, it's a little bit hard to comprehend why uh, the first group exists. But in other places, they're translated as um, 
those chitta modules that view sense objects as um, the appearance of sense objects within the uh, mental fabric as being illusory or um, untrue. They're called, they're usually called false aspectarians. <laughs> Because the, the registering of the of what this translator calls data in the sense faculty is usually called the aspect of the sense object. It's usually I, called aspect. I was wondering about that because if they were, weren't, were you saying that in a sense they refute the need for there being an aspect because there's nothing outside? And so that in that sense, it's not really an aspect. It's like the whole experience is cooked up in mind, right? Yeah, so the whole division between the two, which I should describe before we sort of get back to what you said, is a little bit odd. But so one, one division says that this division within the continuum of the mind of the Alia Vijnana into the various consciousnesses and their objects is a genuine experience, that there's actually mental sense objects and mental sense faculties within the mind, all of it within the mind, that produce genuine sense cognitions. And the other folks believe that the uh, uh, appearance of sense objects in the sense faculties in the overall scheme of the mind is an illusory experience. And so they're called true aspectarians where the aspects are viewed to be true and uh what what uh long Chenba earlier called flawless and uh, now he's saying that to consider consciousness to entail sense data and then there's those that uh are called generally called false aspectarians and uh, he's calling them Chittamatrans who consider consciousness, no, who consider consciousness to be devoid of sense data. These two types of Chittamatrans, and both of them have to have to, uh, try to explain how does sense consciousness occur within a, a vacuum, sort of like sense cognition is all happening. Like, you know, in the head, there's no outside world. We've got a brain in the bat. And so what's going on? Uh, there is consciousness, you know, but they hold that consciousness is real. And the dependent nature is the Ali Vishnana, which is the dependent nature. And um, so just to give a very simplistic presentation of this, instead of going through the whole scheme that he presents, one hand, we have those who believe that there's really sense uh, data that occurs in the uh, Aliyah Vijnana that is perceived as sense objects by the sense faculties resulting in sense consciousnesses within the scheme of our mind. And they have to explain, well, when you perceive multiple sense objects, like at the moment, you look at the screen and you see a whole bunch of different squares, different people in it, lots of different colors, 
you're hearing different sounds and all this is happening at once. Is there, is there one consciousness that's uh, simultaneously aware of all those different sense data object, as objects? So there's all these different sense, there's like an infinite number of sense data going on at any one moment. And so is there an equal matching number of sense consciousnesses that are aware of those sense datas? You know, is there uh, a sense consciousness of yellow, of red, of blue, and different types of sound and different types of touch and all that? You know, are there just like an infinite number of different sense consciousnesses that are uh, simultaneously perceiving the sense objects? Or is it, you know, so is, is it many to many? Or is it many to one? Are there many objects, but just one consciousness is able to somehow uh, be uh, aware of all the different myriad aspects? Or could it be many to zero? Uh, they, they, that's really the, the many to zero is more like the, the ones that view that the sense data is not true. And uh, because they, they don't, they don't uh, accept zero because they have this idea that there is a consciousness as the agent, as the perceiver. So, I mean, in the sense, even the concept of a perceiver is a questionable thing. In a, I mean, in a way, if you, you sort of really go to the nth degree of Chitta Mantra, it seems like you should switch the terminology to like, it's the generator rather than the perceiver. Which is, which is basically what the so-called false aspectarians do, is they say, you know, wait a second, it's all mine. So, you know, this whole discussion is like ridiculous. And uh, you're, you know, making divisions in, in thin air or in sand or water, right. you know, and it's just not real divisions. And, and, it, so and when, it depends. I mean, it really, it's a question of how much they throw out all the prior thinking and just start fresh. But along those lines, though, it, what you were just asking about the one to many and many to many, or the, the one to many versus many to many, was that already decided upon in the prior schools in, in their schemes? Had they already concluded how that worked? Well, Weren't they in the view of each consciousness, each event was its own consciousness? Well, they, they uh, what, what was not made that clear, but was subtly implied here, is that there's a shift from the Vaibhashika Sautrantika to the Chittamachans in, in a number of ways. You know, one of it was the absence of external objects, but the, another one is that in the first two schools, there's only one cognitive stream happening at a time. And... Yeah. And so you don't really have this problem of uh, of many to many or many to one or all for one, three for five, and six for a quarter. How would how does that work? This this single stream. Well, they say that you're only aware of one thing at a time. Um, right. Oh, okay. But then it, what what about the the whole idea that there that the it's a there's a object and a co faculty and a consciousness. Doesn't that imply the many-to-many? 
um, they, they didn't they didn't get to the granularity of um, the the many manifold nature of the object. They said that there's infinitesimal part infinitesimal particles, and when they uh, when they join together, when they uh, become clusters, and when the clusters reach a certain uh, size, then they're perceptible. Okay, but when in our actual experience, I mean, they, that's taking it from the buildup of objects. They don't drill down to like, okay, so you experience one cluster and it has all these different colors in it. So when you experience a patch of blue, are you experiencing many different dots of blue? Mm -hmm. Or are you experiencing one blueness? And they don't really go there, to my knowledge. I, I remember that from our Majamaka right. class too, the patch of blue stuff. Right. Okay. But okay. I thought there was. I thought there was a sort of a basic acceptance of the each consciousness. You know, uh, each experience had its own consciousness. Well, you know, how, how can that possibly be since there's all these infinitesimal particles? So, you know, within a, a, a millimeter, you know, like a, a, a tiny, you know, fraction of a millimeter, there's a zillion different uh, particles of blueness. And when you look at that, you know, at a page of, you know, a, a square inch of blue, what are you seeing? Are you well? I guess I'm thinking about it more from the the moment of mind side, being that any moment of mind is a consciousness of whatever chunk of that blue you're talking about, or whatever yellow, or whatever it is. They're more they're more preoccupied with the registering process, and that, that registration happens once one at a time. People can only register to vote one at a time. No, I, I, oh, I understand that it could only happen one at a time, but I guess that, that doesn't that suggest that it's consciousness, consciousness, con you know, each one, each of those registrations is like a conscious moment. Yes, which is different than the Chittamatrans, which is saying, you know, as, as he started off the, the section, he said, uh, when one sees a lily, it's possible to be simultaneously conscious of the sound, the smell. Oh, okay, yeah. Which was very different. That was the big difference. Right, I got it. So, yeah, if you think you can hear all or experience all that at once, that is different. Yeah. That, that, so that would be a difference between the earlier schools and this one. Yep. That's, okay, that's no multitasking. In the earlier schools, that's right. right. Yeah, right. I sort of had this sense that uh, that uh, one consciousness is in the foreground while the others are in the background in the Sautrantika system. That it's, I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly, but that, that you experience one prominently and the others are sort of latent. They're there, but they're not. Is that possible? That is possible. It, and and even then, they still, if they had thought, it, if they had considered it and something worth their consideration, they they would have, they could have gotten into this issue of, mm -hmm. uh, in that first moment, how many different objects are there and are there, how many different perceivers. But mm -hmm. 
for some reason, it doesn't come up as a major issue in the South Chandra system, whereas in the Chitta Mahashams, they had different distinct views. And, and, and again, like, you know, where do these different categorizations come from? They come from people later on looking at source texts that are called, oh, this is a Chitta Mantra text. And it may be like there's one text by one author that gives this idea that, well, there's many objects and many consci consciousnesses at every moment. And they come up with, oh, there's so, you know, a whole school of the many, many. You know, so, so really it's just like, uh, um, I think the benefit of even hearing these things is to is just to to make us think. Well, how does consciousness happen? If there are, you know, like a zillion things that we're looking at at any one time, you know, you look at a page of a, like a solid color, and there's all these different hues to that color. There's no such thing as, you know, a continuous single colored object. And so how granular do you get with that? And what is it in your perceptual system that's being aware of those different parts of that square inch or foot of the color blue or whatever? Anyway, so those are the two main schemes that somehow they view sense data that there are sense data within the continuum of the mind and others say that the sense, the experience of there being a, a separation of um, consciousness and, and data in the mind is illusory. And when they, uh, when they order these views hierarchically, those that are, view the, uh, the validity of the sense data as being suspect or as being incorrect. The uh, false aspectarians are considered to be the higher view and closer to the Madhyamaka view, where they've gotten closer to the idea that uh, all of these categorizations are meaningless because we're within this continuum of mind that's undifferentiated in nature. So how can you, how can you even talk about whether there's real objects separate from subjects within a, a non-dual consciousness? It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, let's uh, let's see if we can go through his uh, refutation section and, and uh, understand it. He refutes each type. And then he refutes the Chittamatrans in general. So let's start with Chittamatrans in general. If we make it through that, we can backtrack, sort of follow our footprints in the snow and go back to the refutations of the different two different camps of sense data. So I'm on page 98, refutation of the Chittamatra position. In this way, the Chittamatras, both those who consider consciousness to entail sense data and those who don't, do not, accept that non-dual consciousness, that is consciousness that entails no perception of object or subject, is truly existent, is the absolute perfect nature, going back to the three natures, 
on the ultimate level and that sense data are either authentic or false. You know, a very concise little summary of this whole uh, system and its, and its different camps. But these opinions are not valid for the following reason. Because there is a fundamental contradiction in there being two factors, something to be conscious of and something conscious of it. In a single moment of a single cognitive act, it is also impossible for consciousness to be reflexive, just as a sword is unable to cut or even make contact with its own tip. So you see two things here, that he's two sort of two reasons he's giving that he has a problem with these chicha mantra. One is that um, they uh, assert a, a non-dual consciousness, and yet um, they, because they have, they, they talk about it as being conscious, that means there is an object and a subject of consciousness. And so that's a, that's a contradiction internally in their system, to have non-dual mind and yet have consciousness because consciousness is always consciousness of something. It's a little bit of a sort of uh, picky earn points fixating on terminology. And then the other one is that, um, which is really uh, interesting, is that Long Chempa does not accept reflexive consciousness, awareness of awareness, self-aware consciousness, recognition. And... Um, in this way, he's revealing that he's a prasangika madhyamaka, madhyamakan, madhyamikan, however the hell you want to pronounce that funny term. So uh, self-awareness is accepted in the Sautrantika and the Chichamacha school, but not in the Vaibhashika, not in the madhyamaka schools, except in the Zhentong madhyamaka school, reflexive self-aware cognition comes back in as being the true nature of luminous self-aware mind. And uh, so this, this idea of uh, uh, reflexive awareness is one of the more controversial points in the, the whole history of the tenant systems or the view of how uh, the mind is. And uh, Harriet, uh, sorry, Henrietta, I may have asked this before, but so what are these, the systems that don't uh, recognize self-aware consciousness or yoga, is that yogic? No, that's not self-aware. What, what do they, how do they describe meditation or mindfulness? What, what, what is that then? I say uh, meditation is consciousness of an object the breath or some other objects, maybe the mind. Is, is it really true? I'll have to go back and look at my, my copies of the other treasures. Is it really true though, in his descriptions of like in his, all his poetic stuff in the, um, all those other texts that he doesn't in any place use the wrong, you know, that, that terminology of reflexiveness? Somehow, I, I have to go back and read them, but I have a hard time believing that's true. It, it does seem that in his Vajrayana sections that he then reintroduces self-aware Rikpa, basically. 
that quality of self-awareness. But I think the distinction is that self-awareness occurs on the level of Rigpa and not on the level of ordinary mind, so-called system, if you know what I mean. Yes. Okay. If, if it's that, that makes sense. Cause I'm sure that, yeah, he's, he uses that terminology. And he's using the usual logic that those who uh, refute self-cognition uses that a sword doesn't cut itself. A light doesn't light itself and so forth. Right. And those who uh, assert self-cognition say, uh, say the exact opposite. They say, well, it, how is, how is consciousness, how does it know that it's conscious? How do we know what we're experiencing? That's self-awareness. And that a lamp does actually illuminate itself. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. anyway. Thank and then he, he quotes the famous Lanka Avatara Sutra, which is one of the more famous third turning sutras. A sword, for example, is unable to touch or cut itself. So to consciousness is unable in itself to be conscious of itself. One may raise the objection, there is reflexive consciousness because consciousness in the present cognizes consciousness in the past. It's generally different than what self-aware cognition is meant to be. It's, it's meant to be focused on the present. But that is not so. When in the present moment there's consciousness of the of a past moment, does that past moment exist as a sense object or not? When we're experiencing a memory, is it is the memory existing in the past or is the memory now existing in the present as an object of a present mind? The present. Obviously the present. Particularly since he's asserting this and he's always right. So it's gotta be that right. <laughs> Um, if it does exist, it would be possible for it to be a permanent real entity if it was existent in the past and the present. Because while the consciousness of the present moment existed, that of the past would still exist without having ceased to be. Past would be present and present would be past and all hell would just like totally break loose. In the past moment, if the past moment does not exist, that fact ensures that there could also not be conscious of it consciousness of it because there would be no object of consciousness so uh, you the, the past can't exist in the present and therefore you can't be conscious of the past because you can't be conscious of something that's non-existent one might argue there is reflexive consciousness because consciousness comes about in and of itself Ooh, it's not dependently arisen cardinal sin. That is not so either. Is what occurs is reflexive consciousness, reflexive in comparison to consciousness of something else, or is it not? Which is one of the major point, ways of describing reflexive consciousness, that there's consciousness of something else and there's consciousness of itself. If it is when there is a mental act whereby a single consciousness is cognizant of something else, that consciousness is not reflexive consciousness because it's consciousness of something else. So it would be possible for there to be consciousness that is not reflexive. If reflexive consciousness is not reflexive in comparison to consciousness of something else, there would be no criteria for classifying it as reflexive consciousness because there would be no consciousness of something else to compare with reflexive consciousness. 
He's playing with words. He's just playing with words. He's just, he's just being silly. One might now object, oh, come on, relative consciousness, reflexive consciousness and consciousness of something else are different aspects of a single consciousness. So this poses no problem for they're substantially the same, which is generally the view of sort of reflexive consciousness is that within when there's an eye consciousness, there's a, a consciousness of the object and of the consciousness happening. So the, the reflexive, reflexive reflexors say, but again, this is not so. How could one then refute the Somkin concept of consciousness as a two-sided mirror? This is a low blow. You know, this is like saying to somebody, well, that view of yours is like the Christians or, you know, something like really insulting. You know, how, you know, God, that's, that's what the Somkins say. Oh, that hurts to the quick. Go even further, maybe like pagan or something. Yeah, just like or like mathematicians or something. You know, that is, or they're like Republicans. You know, they believe that trickle down economics. That is, if there were consciousness of something else, when there is reflexive consciousness in a single moment of a single cognitive act, a single being's consciousness would be two-sided, which is a concept in no way different from that of the Sankhya's. How would one be able to refute the flawed position here that reflexive consciousness and consciousness of something else, which are defined in comparison with one another, would be distinct yet congruent in a single moment? Therefore, these positions that sense data are either authentic or false are not valid. <laughs> it's a little bit funny how he links it back to this issue of sense data. I mean, like, how did they relate to <laughs> I don't find this convincing. <laughs> exactly. That's what Zongsen Kensi Rimshe, in a, in a very funny way, talks about. So the refutation of Chittamatra was very difficult. We have little time. Let's look at one of the other refutations going back uh, about a 95. Refutation of, uh, by the way, uh, just above it, the uncompounded phenomena with respect to this group, the Chittamatrams agree with Sautrantikas, but they add other uncompounded things, such as suchness and uh, Dharmadhatu, the basic space of phenomena. Interestingly enough, I don't know how you distinguish Dharma Dhatu from suchness. You know, how can those be separate entities or dharmas? But anyway, a refutation of the Chittamachas who consider consciousness to entail sense data. This is, you know, this is the more the more difficult one to swallow. Is how can there be sense, real, true sense data within the realm of uh, consciousness only or mind only? So. He says, although the sources used by the Chittamantras are somewhat superior to those of the Shravakas. This is a funny thing to say. He's talking about how they use Mahayana Sutra instead of um, earlier sutras. Uh, they are still not sound. There are two refutations, a general and detailed. The general should be understood to comprise three points. It's untenable. It seems to me the translator has said untenable and intenable at different occasions. Am I dreaming or did he say intenable at some places? No, I see some furrowed brows. Anyway. Maybe it was a typo. Maybe. He says infeasible as well. Uh, maybe that was it. 
it's untenable to assert that sensory appearances are mind. He doesn't like the whole that whole thing. So, you know, in terms of the, the different tenant systems being in some way incremental, there's a big shift between Chitta Mantra and Madhyamaka where uh, Madhyamakan sort of revert back to the Vaibhashika Satrantika and, and disagree with this whole thing of uh, everything being mind in the Chitta Mantra. So it's not tenable to assert that sensory appearances are mind. Imputation is untenable. Imputation. Sort of a key feature of the of how ignorance is described in Madhyamaka. Uh, presumably it's a different type of imputation here and uh, it is infeasible here we go, infeasible is that a correct term? infeasible? I don't know, it doesn't seem like it <laughs> infeasible, not feasible to use the designation non-existence of identity the first point has already been addressed in the refutation of the Soutronic approach that's a slippery way out. So you look back in the South Chantica, right? The refutation. Refutation of external objects. Uh, look that up under R, refutation. Refutation. Uh, let's see, the refutation of external matter has already been covered in the Vibhashtika section. Okay, the refutation of Vibhashikas. And here he says, uh, the assertion that the new particles are ultimately real entities are untenable. Uh, this whole idea of particles being surrounded by other particles that don't touch, have no sides, and, and all that, that whole thing about uh, uh, partless particles and indivisible particles, that just makes no sense. So, that's the uh, the refutation of external objects, but here he's staying. Um, so, Chittamashans who consider consciousness to entail sense data, he's saying, we already dispensed with sense data. I think he's saying that, right? As for the second point, it's the image of a double moon, like from pressing your eyeballs or something like that, or moon and water, generic ideas concepts and so forth were real entities of consciousness they would constitute that which is dependent since only the dependent nature has a, a reality status and can be an object of consciousness the imputed nature cannot be an object of consciousness because consciousnesses are uh, non-conceptual so how could they be imputed Are we? Imputation is untenable. Uh, if those conceptual entities were were real entities of consciousness, they would not be imputed. Although the obsessive tendency to fixate on a sense of identity takes the two kinds of identity as its objects. What are the two types of identity? Dogs and cats or Republicans and Democrats? Persons 
and phenomena, right? People, egos, and dharmas. Makes the two kinds of identity as its object. It is, in fact, impossible for there to be anything that be, could be characterized as having such identity, since it is impossible for there to actually be these two kinds of identity. Therefore, because it's impossible for such characteristics of imputed things to exist, even imputed things per se, which can be characterized on the basis of distinctions that can be made given that things have dissimilar characteristics, cannot possibly exist. <laughs> I think this is a very convoluted way of saying that uh, imputation is said to be the projection of entities that don't exist. And since the entities don't exist, you can't possibly be conscious of them. You can't actually create a... Uh, a concept, a conscious experience of them. When you, when you actually generate an imputation, when you come up with a concept, really, your your um, the concept doesn't exist. The concept is the referent of a specifically characterized phenomena, which is the, a thought, a thought that has a ref uh, that has. Uh, color, shape, you know, that has some uh, reality to it, some dependent nature of it. And the imputation doesn't exist because there's nothing imputed, something like that. But the, the, we know they don't exist. We already know nothing exists, right? But we still have these manifestations going on about things that don't exist. So I, I don't... He can't make existence as a basis of his argument because we already said they don't exist. There's just for some reason it, our sen our sense objects are generating manifestations and then we impute on them. So you don't need the full two moons to actually exist. You just need some weird stuff going on in your eyeballs to arise something that you can I impute think, to. I right? think. I think you're saying the same thing as him. I think oh, no, no. <laughs> no. The I, meant to be saying, the, I meant to be disagreeing with him. The footnote is actually, I found, pretty helpful. Help us out, Henrietta, with the footnote. Uh, 243 um, says that the contradiction here is that, on the one hand, these chittamatrans define the examples given in the text as imputed phenomena and hence non-existent as such, but on the other hand, consider them actual entities of consciousness dependent on consciousness since they accept consciousness as both truly existent and entailing sense data. Does that, no? Does <laughs> that help me a little bit, I guess? <laughs> Derek, are they, is he basically saying, dismissing the idea of a generally characterized phenomena? I think he's, he's taking that one step further. He's saying that because generally characterized phenomena have no truth status, therefore the, there can't be an awareness of them. There can't but, be. A, but a, that's what I mean is that it, it seems like he's, isn't he denying the experience we actually have? That I mean that we we do have a, an experience that 
where we 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 do this. So he's like he's isn't he denying sort of the experience of what we do? He's denying that we actually impute. He's saying there's no imputation going on because you can't actually impute anything because uh, it's impossible to to um, you know the process of imputation is a cognitive experience and it has an object and cognition always has a real object and uh, so you can't have a cognitive experience of a non-real object so then how would he describe what we do I, I think he's trying to say that when we impute we're actually uh, having a cognitive experience of something that is true and we're thinking that it refers to something else you know the the way that the way that uh, generic or objects or generally characterized phenomena as the object of conceptual consciousness is described in the Sautrantika system is that it's the ref- referent object. It's not an appearing object. It's not an a, uh, engaged object. It's a referent object. It's, it's you think of a vase. When you think of a vase, you give rise to... Uh, a thought in your mind and that thought has real existence the thought itself is a specifically characterized phenomenon whatever kind of vague sense of vase that we conjure up at that moment is is that we think that the vase that we conjure up in our mind refers to something else a general concept of vase when in fact it is just that thing in itself at that moment. Right. Okay, the only, that's good. That's, yeah. The only way we conceive of vasness is to give rise to one uh, instance of vasness in our mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something like that. Let's see. The third point, either consciousness perceives the non-existence of identity of phenomena or it doesn't. It's fair. Consciousness does this non-existent could not be emptiness because you can't be cognizant of emptiness since it would be a real entity of consciousness. If consciousness does not perceive it, this non-existence could not be an object of valid cognition. And so one could not determine that it has any characteristics. Therefore, it would be infeasible to use the conventional designation, non-existence of identity. So uh, let's see, he's refuting here. It is infeasible to use the designation non-existence of identity. Um, I think he's saying that uh, there is no identity, so you can't have a non-existence of something that doesn't exist. It's tricky, you know. The whole thing is he's playing with words here. But they're doing it in order to sharpen your your mind. It's just the total pro- the total project is to sharpen your thinking so that you can begin to have some glimmer of an idea of what the mistake the mind makes all the time in believing that we exist. It does feel like. Um... Definitely reading this starts to undo a reliance, a habitual reliance on logic and language to 
explain things. Like I do think as he goes through this, that naturally starts to break down in my mind. So, and, and it's like, I mean, I don't know if this is intention or not, but, but because I can't follow it exactly as these logical steps, like I have this, mm, I feel like some, some understanding is gained that goes beyond reliance upon the language and the logic. And that feels to me like the point in a way. Yeah, it seems to be basically taking apart the whole scheme of tenets. <laughs> it's like studying tenets is a process of undoing the idea of tenets. Yeah. <laughs> Why did we have to go through this in the first place? You know, just meditate and or, and then relax and watch movies, TV. Wouldn't this be a contemplation? Is that that would be a way to get at some of this is to take one of these and sort of try to. <laughs> I think it's more like a debate. It's like a, a, like a sort of challenge your mind to like, you know, what, what they do in debate is like they build one assertion after another and then try to poke holes in it. So it's like, you know, is, is there a computer in front of you? You know, so then what is that computer? So then what are you seeing? when you experience this object in front of you and who's experiencing it and how is that perception happening? You know, just sort of bit by bit, gradually like examining what is going on at the current moment? You know, can you describe what's happening right now? Well, the debate would be from in the contemplation between my, <laughs> my ego and <laughs> and the you know what's yeah trying to sort well, that out <laughs> or the habitual what we habitually yeah. yeah yeah exactly ultimately you turn it back on your sense of self right and so who is who is thinking these things mm -hmm. how am i thinking of them if i can question who's thinking about them who's questioning who's questioning them? <laughs> The the problem I have all the time, well, not that I do this all the time, but when I try to do it is that there's a lot of resistance there. <laughs> yeah, it's inertia, right? Yeah, I mean, it just, that's, I don't want to go there, you know. Yeah, that's the idea, is to, is to try to push through that inertia with this right. process. And, uh, and, and in the process sort of come up with like working hypotheses. Well, my working hypothesis is that there's one consciousness in many objects and, you know, and then test that out and challenge that and so forth, which he does in the next, like if, if uh, take another couple of minutes and we'll, we'll experience a little bit of this multiplicity thing that I referred to earlier. So uh, the detailed refutation has two points. It's untenable to assert that multiple sense data truly exists in a single consciousness and it's untenable to assert that multiple sense data truly exist in multiple consciousnesses. As for the first, uh, sensory appearances manifesting in all their variety of the expression of a single indivisible consciousness. How could one refute the position that there are substantial entities with numerous characteristics if one says that there are uh, sensory appearances manifesting in there, all of their variety 
as the expression of a single indivisible consciousness, the mind only. How could one refute the position that there are substantial entities with various characteristics? One might respond that their true existence as single entities is refuted by the fact that they can be seen from numerous points of view. So this idea of single entityness is, you know, uh, different sides of the uh, infinitesimally small particles. You can see them from different sides. You can see situations from different points of view, I guess. The very fact that sensory appearances manifest in myriad ways because their multiple aspects are taken as frames of reference is itself a refutation of the contention that something has true existence as a single indivisible consciousness. As for the second, if the multiplicity, the multiplicity of indivisible sense objects truly existed in a multiplicity of consciousness as cognizing sense data, there would be no single consciousness perceiving the multiplicity of particles. And so there could be no case of obvious sensory appearances manifesting. A little bit slippery. But That's going back to what we were talking about before, though many to many, one to many. One for all, and three for five, and six for a quarter. So do they ever refer to the whole tenant review as the journey that need not be made? Yes, some of them do. Some of them definitely do. <laughs> anyway, so we are ending on page uh, 99, and we'll begin there next week at the Mad Yamaka system. Let's uh, close with our, our dedication of uh, merit. This marriage may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. So next week, you can't come to class if you haven't voted. I already voted. I, I voted. I, I mailed in. Very good. Betty. I'm I might be a poll observer, so I don't know if I'll be if I'll be done yet or get home. Okay. No. I voted seven times. <laughs> <laughs> They're watching you. They're gonna arrest you. I wouldn't even make those jokes. <laughs> That's the point. You've lost your freedom. Yeah. You can't even make a joke. Right. Cynthia, could you vote in person? You did. Were you able to? I did. I went to. I did early voting. I had to go out to Brooklyn College. It wasn't bad. I, I, we rode our bikes over on Monday morning, actually, my daughter and I, and it actually only took an hour, including the travel. There was about a half. Yeah, the the whole quad. There was like a line around the quad, but it actually moved quickly, and it was only about a half an hour. Yeah, I don't. I decided that. You know, after all this crap, uh, you know, I was planning to do it by mail originally, but with all the crap with the mail, with all this other stuff, I figured I'd save them all that, you know, extra hassle. And I hope lots and lots of people vote in person in a healthy way, hopefully, because there's a lot at stake. Yeah. Well, they do have ballot boxes at the polling sites. 
Oh, yeah, that that could be done. I mean, I actually did order. I did have a ballot just in case, in case I was sick or something, but I decided to just do it in person. Mm. Uh, but let's pray that a lot of people do because there's going to be a lot of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good night. Hey, thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.